This is an ABC podcast. Imagine a land where goats and chickens discuss politics behind closed doors, where packs of uniformed dogs keep the peace, and a doddery old horse has been clinging to power for four decades. Animal Farm heads to Zimbabwe in the Booker shortlisted novel Glory. You're going to meet the author, no Violet Bulawayo, today on The Book Show. Hello, I'm Claire Nichols. No Violet Bulawayo and the Australian writer Chris Womersley are here on The Book Show today, along with Carmela Shamsi. Carmela won the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2018 for Home Fire, and her new novel is called Best of Friends. It's about Zara and Mariam. And as teenagers in 1980s Karachi, their bond is non-negotiable. If you moved to Alaska tomorrow, Zara says to Mariam, we'd still be best friends for the rest of our lives. But of course, that's easy to say when you're kids. As adults in modern-day London, things are a lot more complicated and power, politics and something they call girl fear could drag them apart. Carmela Shamsi is on a noisy street in London and she joins me now. Hi, Carmela. Hello. Have you been lucky enough to have a, a lifelong best friend, a Mariam or a Zara, in your own life? Um, I've been lucky enough to have several lifelong best friends. My absolute, you know, sort of childhood school best friend um, is actually a boy, now a man. So it's a slightly different dynamic. But, it, you know, there is that continuity where we've known each other since we were four years old, which is now rather a long time. There's something really unique, I think, about a friendship formed in childhood. Sometimes you don't even remember how or why you became friends. You just have this person in your life. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's certainly the case in, in the novel where sort of, you know, I think at one point one of them recalls there's an early memory of the other one helping her tie her shoelaces. But beyond that, she really can't remember what the friendship formed from. And, and certainly with uh, with my best friend, I have really no memory of it at all. I remember an early conversation about dogs. Um, so that's my equivalent of the tying shoelaces. But we were already friends by then. Um, and you become friends almost before you know what character or values are. You don't know your own. You certainly don't recognise anyone else's. You just get along. You know, you like each other. You enjoy each other's company. And that can be the basis of a friendship that stretches a whole life. It's a beautiful thing, but I always think it's a bit like a sibling relationship, that really long relationship, where you also really know how to push each other's buttons. There's all the jealousy and the secrets that have formed over the years. Is that something that you reflect on too? Oh, absolutely. And it's not only that you know how to push each other's buttons. It's it's almost as if those buttons, you know, in adult life only exist with that one person. <laughs> that in other ways you're like, well, this doesn't bother me anymore if someone says this or does this. And then you think, yeah, but if, if that friend says or does it, it still irritates me because <laughs> they're only doing it because they think it still annoys me. Um, but it's true. You are known to your best friend and they know every stage of your life, which means... You know, for those of us who might at some point attempt any kind of reinvention of the self, you know, or to pretend you have left some part of yourself behind, uh, you're going to have, if you have a childhood best friend, they'll be standing there looking at you saying, uh-huh. They know the real you. <laughs> <laughs>
Absolutely. And then, but of course, the other complicated thing, and this does come up in the book, is if you've known someone forever, then is it possible that sometimes you hang on to ideas of who they are that, that do become outdated? Because, you know, certain aspects of character stay the same, of course. But if you are looking at someone and remembering their 14-year-old self, now, there are ways in which I suspect possibly just most of us, have left behind certain versions of our childhood selves. We've grown out of it. We've quite deliberately, you know, made efforts to not be a certain kind of person um, or to think in new ways. And your childhood friends may still be holding on to ideas of someone who you are when and not seeing kind of the newer versions of yourself. With Mariam and Zara, there's a, a class divide there too, especially as children. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the wealth gap that exists between our heroes, Mariam and Zara, and how that affects the way they see the world? Yeah, I mean, class, I think, is is, is much too underwritten about. Um, and when it's written about, it's often about very huge disparities. And in their case, they're both sort of middle class, but Mariam is very rich, upper middle class. And Zara is what you would call sort of you know, fairly comfortable, solidly middle class. And and to someone, you know, from other parts of Karachi, they may actually look as though they belong pretty much the same group. Certainly they go to the same school, but the two of them are very aware of their differences. I mean, Mariam's is the family who goes off for, you know, summer holidays to London and lives in the palatial house and has the Mercedes. Um, and none of these things are possible or even really dreamt of um, or wanted, in fact, by, by Zara's parents. Um, but of course, because Zara sees her best friend growing up with it, she does do a little bit of wanting of all of it. And at the same moment, Mariam looks at Zara's family, who are sort of very close and sort of sensible people, um, and, and wants that. The interesting thing is, even though they're very young when they become friends, so when, when we meet them, you know, they're teenagers, they already know to not really talk about that class divide. I think Mariam is sort of hyper aware that she doesn't want Zara to feel that she's looking at Zara's family and in, in any way noticing that their car isn't so nice. And and Zara, of course, is very aware of these things, but is, is certainly not going to come right out and say them. And I don't think Zara really fully understands the extent to which actually to Mariam, who has all these things, they matter much less than they do to the one who doesn't have them. This book opens in 1988 and these girls are best friends at a really pivotal moment in Pakistani history. Uh, Kamala Shamsi, I'm hoping you might be able to talk to me about where you were and what you remember of Benazir Bhutto coming to power. I, I remember it so clearly. I was a year older than the two girls in the novel. I have no idea why I made them a year younger. There was once a reason for it. <laughs> They're 14, I was 15, um, and it really started in you know, August, you know, there's at that point, 11 of the 15 years of my life had been spent under military rule with one military dictator. You know, posters of him were set, sold at traffic lights. His sort of face was everywhere. And on this day in August, the phone rang and it was an aunt of mine. And she said, are your parents home? And I said, no, they're out. And she said, when they come home, tell them General Zia is dead. And I said, OK. And I hung up the phone. My parents returned home not much later, and several hours went past. 
And then my mother ran into the room where I was with my father and said, General Zia has died. And I said, oh, yes, you know, aunt so-and-so called, called to tell us. And my parents just looked at me and said, why didn't you mention it? And I said, oh, you know, she's always full of tall tales. And it was actually only when writing this novel that I thought back and I thought, well, yes, she often had some exaggerations, but she never said anything like this. And clearly what really happened was I didn't believe it. I absolutely couldn't believe that this man could be gone. And then when people started to say, well, now we have democratic elections, I thought, no, that's not going to happen. You just have another dictator. And when they said there'd be democratic elections and this 35-year-old woman, Benazir Bhutto, is going to be elected into power, I thought, what world are you living in? That'll never happen. And then it happened. And in the weeks leading up to that, so the winter of 1988, it's as though Karachi became this giant party. And if you, if you went to an actual party, the music that got people onto the dance floor was actually election campaign songs. And if you were a young girl, and power had always looked absolutely unremittingly male, to suddenly see a young woman in the middle of it was extraordinary. And for you being a 15-year-old, did you see new possibilities for yourself and what you could be? I don't think I was consciously aware of it in the way that when you're young, you know, you, you're not analysing your reactions. You just know this feels amazing. But I'm sure something happened at some very deep level in terms of, of thinking it is possible for women to do things that they haven't done before. Wow. You know, I mean, which of course was something I sort of knew at an abstract level. Um, you know, my mother's friend would include things like Pakistan's first woman architect, you know. Um, but to see at, you know, it happened at the, he- at the level of someone who's the prime minister of a country, yeah, and it, it must have had a really profound impact in a way that went so deep I don't recognise it. Mm. And Zara and Mariam, your characters in Best of Friends certainly feel that great thrill of potential. It's such an exciting time. But it's actually only one day later that they're at a party and they experience something that Mariam calls girl fear. Would you mind describing the incident that takes place at this party? Yes, they're at this party and they, they, it's the day after Benazir has been inaugurated and they've just seen, you know, a woman become prime minister and she's in this hall surrounded by these men, including military men who had kept her out of you know, the country for years. And they feel a sense that everything should be different now, you know, except they're 14 year old girls and essentially for them, nothing has changed. Um, but there is, there's a feeling of this can't be the same as every other weekend. The world is different. Something must happen. And they end up in a car with two boys, one of whom they know a little, the other of whom is actually a man. You know, he's a, he's a few years older than them. They don't know him. And it's one of those car rides. And, and you know, when I describe this car ride, every woman I know says, oh, yeah, I know that car ride. And it's that one where you set off and it's kind of exciting and thrilling. And there's all this potential around what might happen in the evening. And then some tiny thing happens and your brain switches and you become afraid. And this, this thing that, that Mariam calls girl fear gets activated, the sense of vulnerability and precarity and, and the idea that because you live in a woman's body or a girl's body, any awful thing might happen at any moment. I think 
a lot of women listening will recognise this idea of girl fear, but I'm thinking it probably has a bit of a different flavour in 1980s Pakistan. I mean, this is a a time and a place that you've described before as incredibly misogynistic. Does that bring a new level of fear or danger? You know, I don't know if it does. Um, And that's the thing that that's one thing that in, in the conversation I've been having with women friends around the world around this book and that one scene, you know, if you are trapped in a car with a man who is driving and you think he may be going to do you harm, I don't think it's any better if that is happening in Sydney or London or Hong Kong, you know. I do think that that women's relationship to public spaces is quite different. I mean, for these girls, there's a way in which their life exists in private spaces. So they're either in houses or they're in the cars of people they know or they're at school. But the streets themselves are sort of off limit. They're very much men's spaces. And the streets at night are particularly men's spaces. So that is something they're really aware of. And as the car is driving along through a particular part of Karachi and they're looking out and they only see men around. Um, So there's also the sense of, well, we can't run out of the car and call for help because we may end up in a worse situation. Uh, But again, I don't think that's all that unusual in the world either. It's a really chilling scene. Uh, This book is split into two parts. The first is in 1988 in Karachi, and then we move into almost the present day in London. And as adults, Zara and Mariam are both living in the UK. They're both these incredibly powerful women. Um, Zara is the head of the Centre for Civil Liberties. Uh, Mariam is a venture capitalist. I wondered how much that moment in that car, that experience of girl fear, has driven these women to reach for power? Um, I think Mariam in particular would hate the idea that that car ride had any effect on who she wanted to be. I think in, in Mariam, I think in both their cases, actually, I think they've always been quite ambitious. You know, I mean, Mariam's idea when she was growing up, she thought she would inherit the family business. And she's sort of been preparing for this since she was, I don't know, eight years old. And Zara has always wanted to do well and leave a mark on the world. So I think that has always been in there, in them. But I think possibly what that that interaction in the car might have done is, is to give them the sense of there are certain kinds of power that are so deeply held by men. And I think one of the questions that the book, I hope, asks is, what does it mean to be a powerful woman in these spaces that are have been so masculine? Um, you know, do you sort of replicate male ideas of power and we can, you know, go endlessly to what does that mean? Or do you find new ways of doing it? So I think there is something about the that relationship of power and gender that certainly is related to, to that car ride. Zara, uh, as an adult, is passionately opposed to the British government on a lot of human rights issues. Mariam's a businesswoman and she'll quite happily work with the government if it means the success of her business. These two are still the best of friends and I wondered for a while how they could still be so close when their politics and their worldviews are so far apart. I think there's there's a moment in, in the novel um, when Zara is talking to her father who is still in Pakistan and her father who's now getting older says, your mother and I long ago agreed that the day one of us dies, the first call the other person makes will be to Mariam because she's the only person we would trust to break the news to you. 
Um, and Zara said, and, and does Mariam know this? And she said, yes. And, and she has promised us that she will drop whatever she's doing and fly with you back to Karachi because there's no way she lets you make that journey alone. And to have that person in your life, you know, I think you're willing to overlook a lot of differences or just navigate your way around them because there's someone who you can absolutely trust to do that for you. Do you think it is harder these days to maintain friendships across political lines? I think it's something that people in, in some countries are becoming a lot more aware of. I mean, in, one of the reasons why the novel got written when it did was because in 2016, I became very aware that between Brexit in the UK and, and Trump in the US, a lot of people were saying, I can no longer speak to this person who's been in my life forever. We've always had differences, but it's impossible now to to pretend they aren't there or, or, or talk across them. Um, I think if you grew up somewhere like Pakistan, you're probably less phased by really deep political differences or you sort of recognize that, yeah, there are some people you know and love who just see the world very differently and and you probably yell at each other a lot <laughs> um, and then still wake up the next day and, you know, send the other person a text to say, how are you doing? So I, I, I don't know that it's dip, more difficult everywhere in the world. Um, but certainly the there has been this rise of populism in many places, you know, which comes accompanied by great passionate feeling. And certainly, I mean, it's also true in Pakistan, I think, around the figure of Imran Khan, there's been quite a lot of polarization. But I don't think there's been quite the same sort of fracturing of old relationships. Um, I think people do learn at a certain point to, you know, yell at each other and then move the conversation away to something else, to common ground. I think we could all uh, benefit from learning that lesson. Uh, this book is critical of the UK on some fronts. Uh, we'll get into that in a bit more detail in a moment. But it's also so affectionate, Carmela. Um, there's a beautiful passage where Zara thinks about how this city of London has stolen her heart. She talks about the beautiful soft light over the city. I know you moved to the UK in two. 2007. Uh, can you remind me what, what brought you to London? Well, I loved it. I love it. It's a city that I'd sort of been spending time in over the previous decade. And my, my first novel was published in 1998 and, and a number of novels followed quite quickly. And I'd always sort of end up in London around publication or a little after. And, and you know, basically I would get advances and I would spend them, you know, <laughs> um, in London and then go back to Karachi and write the next book. And at the time, there was a visa for writers, artists, and composers. And I remember thinking, well, you know, I seem to qualify for this. And I used to move around quite a lot because I used to also teach in America from time to time. So basically, in any 15-month period, I was sort of, you know, Karachi, upstate New York, London. And there was one day I thought, I just want to stop somewhere and, you know, have all my books in one place and put a painting on the wall and buy an expensive set of kitchen knives to cook with. Um, and it just somehow in the course of the preceding decade, London had been, you know, that place that had stolen my heart. And is it home to you now? It is, yeah. I mean, Karachi is home in a different way. So I've never understood people who feel you have to have one home. Um, you can have two. But I would say London, you know, is home in a way that is much more about the present. Um, and Karachi is home in a way that's much more about the past. 
I mentioned um, some of the complicated relationships with the place you call home in this book. Um, the book does explore the quite cruel treatment of some migrants to the UK, people who are denied leave to stay in the country. And I know this is a theme you've dealt with before. Uh, as as you see it, Kamala, are things getting better or worse for migrants to the UK? Much worse. I mean, if you are, well, you know, not all migrants are the same, right? So if you are a high worth individual, as they call them, um, if you've got a lot of money, it's, it's fairly easy. It's fairly straightforward. And there are fast tracks in all kinds of ways. But in other ways, it's, it's much harder. So that, that visa I came in on, writers, artists and composers, that's, you know, they got rid of about 12 years ago. But in other ways, particularly if you are um, a refugee, an asylum seeker, if you are someone who doesn't have a lot of money, um, it's it's getting harder. It's getting cruel, you know. And that's that's a part which I think Zara feels so deeply inside her is that there is a, a deliberate cruelty. I mean, you know, when Theresa May was Home Secretary, she introduces phrase hostile environment, you know, and said we will create a deliberately hostile environment, um, and she said it about people who are illegal migrants, as they call them. But actually, it, it very quickly spread through the Home Office's kind of policy towards, um, you know, large categories of migrants, including, you know, the Windrush generation, people who had been living here all their lives and really were legal, but there'd been some glitch in their paperwork at some point. Um, so it, it's it's very, it's, it's very dark and grim. And, and of course, you know, the reason why Zara gets so upset about it is because she is so attached to to the UK because you know it is the countries that you care most about that make you the angriest. Mm. Uh, you wrote an opinion piece for the Guardian earlier this year where you said you didn't write fiction set in the UK until you became a citizen yourself. Why was that? Because I was worried that if I said the wrong critical thing, my visa wouldn't be renewed. I mean, that is sort of what the hostile environment did. Is even to those of us who you know, were sort of on perfectly safe visa categories or so it seemed and, you know, were sort of writers in the world. Um, there was still this level of anxiety every time you needed to renew that, you know, maybe people would be looking for any excuse to, re- to reject me. Um, and maybe if I say the wrong thing to anger the wrong person. So certainly I'm not going to say anything about the Home Office and the UK's migrant policy um, until I have that passport in hand. Wow. Carmela Shansi, uh, moving from something quite heavy to something quite light, there's a lot of cricket in this book, Best of Friends. Both Sarah and Mariam know the game backwards. Uh, how important is cricket in your own life? Oh, my God, so important. You know, if you were growing up in Pakistan in the 1980s, um, and this was the era when, when the Pakistan cricket team had Imran Khan and Vaseem Akram and uh, Javed Miadad, and as I said earlier, it was a period of dictatorship. Things were very, very grim in many ways. And one of the few places that, or few ways in which you could feel, you know, a sense of national pride or joy was watching cricket. But the other thing that I didn't know until much later when a cricketing journalist friend told me this was actually the, the dictatorship was very, very keen on promoting cricket because they also realized that if people were indoors watching cricket on TV, they weren't out on the streets protesting. And if cricket created a good feeling, that sort of spread through the country. So there was a very deliberate attempt um, to get cricket on air as much as possible. So there was more TV broadcasting of cricket than there'd ever been before. 
And when I was growing up, everyone, girls and boys, both watched cricket obsessively. I mean, very often also there was one state run television channel. So cricket was often the only thing on it that you would want to watch. Um, but it was also this peculiar thing where boys and girls all watch cricket, but largely only the boys played. Um, and so in the novel, I do have Mariam to sort of partly to show, you know, the way in which she is a rule breaker um, is the fact that she plays cricket in her family's leather goods factory with with all the men who work there. Did you play? I didn't. I didn't at the time. And then about about a decade or more ago, um, a team called the Authors Eleven reformed in England, and it had originally been started about a hundred years ago. And P.G. Woodhouse and Conan Doyle played for it, and it got resurrected. And involved in it was a friend of mine who knew I loved cricket. So the captain said to me, well, you must join the team and, and you must play. And I said, I said, but I don't play. He said, look, here's the deal. We've got a book deal and everyone who plays a game gets to write a chapter. And we really want you to write a chapter, but you have to play a match. And I said, but I don't play cricket. And he said airily, he said, oh, the author's 11 has a long and distinguished tradition of players who can't play. Um, <laughs> so I played one game. Um, I insisted on going in at number 10 rather than anywhere earlier. Um, I was out on the second delivery, but apparently on the first ball, I had a beautiful back foot defensive. And I will always cherish the fact that I was bowled out by a woman who was the former captain of the South African international women's side. I love that story. Uh, Carmela Shamsi, your book is called The Best of Friends. It's published by Bloomsbury. It's been so wonderful to meet you today. And you as well. Thank you very much. It's book of time now. Over the last three episodes of The Book Show, you've met three of the shortlisted writers for this year's prize. If you missed those conversations, you can find them on the ABC Listen app. I highly recommend them. Right now, you're going to meet the fourth writer, No Violet Bulawayo, and her book inspired our farm soundscape at the top of the show. She's been shortlisted for her novel, Glory, but how's this for an incredible record? She was also shortlisted for her first novel, a book called We Need New Names. No, Violet, congratulations once again. Thank you so very much. So when you made the shortlist in 2013, you were the first black African woman to be shortlisted for the prize. Uh, does making the shortlist have the same meaning for you this time around? Definitely. Um, the Booker is one of the most prestigious literary prizes out there. And uh, just being on it, even being on the long list is such a, a, a compliment. I'm, I'm really happy to be here the second time around. Yeah, two from two is so impressive. You, I mean, you must feel quite proud of yourself, right? <laughs> um, yes, and, and grateful too, knowing that you know, there are scores and scores of brilliant books that are published each year. So, you know, to be among the the, 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 the chosen really feels special. So this book is called Glory. It's a piece of political satire and it stars a cast of animals. It's set on the farm of Jadada, which we can see as a stand-in for Zimbabwe itself. Why use this allegorical form to tell this story? 
for many reasons, including the fact that the story was so fresh when I was writing it. Um, there were times when things were unfolding as I was literally writing and that kind of interfered with the creative process. And so I decided to go back to the oldest technology of, of storytelling that is using animals. It gave me the distance. It allowed me um, the space to invent and kind of make my story, my uh, make the story my own despite what was happening in, in real life. Yeah, and the historical period that you're taking on here uh, is basically the end of the reign of Robert Mugabe and, and what followed for Zimbabwe. Is is that about right? That is about, about right. It's an end that um, most of us didn't quite expect because we had reconciled ourselves to the fact that uh, Mugabe, who had actually thre- was threatening to run again and again and keep rolling, was simply going to uh, die in power. So to wake up to the news of his demise was quite spectacular. Spectacular, and I knew from right away that it's a story that I wanted to to write. I guess it would have been a time of great hope and optimism for the future. Um, has that optimism come to fruition? Um, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It was a very humbling moment for many of us who actually celebrated. I mean, just the euphoria um, back in 2017 was was amazing. I'd never seen anything like it before. Of course, looking back, you know, one could say we should have known better because it was simply a change of, of players and the same system um, that was responsible for the predicament we are still in had always been in place. But at the same time, you know, what other options did we have? We were so desperate to the extent that we were willing to to take the risk and, and jump in and hope that, you know, we were turning a corner. But unfortunately, as quickly as a few months in, we understood that we had been played pretty much. In the first chapter of Glory, we see a doddery old horse. Uh, he's known as the father of the nation and we can see him as a kind of four-legged fictionalised version of Robert Mugabe. Um, we also see all sorts of political leaders pop up as different animals, including a tweeting baboon who we take to be Donald Trump. Um, what's the power, no Violet, in reducing uh, world leaders to animals? You know, at the very least, I think it demystifies them. You know, there's a, a, a power that comes with the, with the office of leader, with the office of president. But with the calibre of, of leaders that Glory is concerned with, um, it's pretty clear that it's, an, it's a power that um, people don't quite deserve. Most of these men, and it's actually men mostly, have been violent, have been buffoons, and really have been responsible to, you know, considering that I call two countries my home, most of the problems that we are, we are dealing with. So it was my way of actually reducing them to a level where hopefully people can, can see them for what they are. 
And how much does this novel owe to George Orwell and Animal Farm? Uh, it's it's an obvious comparison, and Animal Farm is obviously uh, directly referenced in the in the text. You know, uh, George Orwell's classic, written at a different time about a failed revolution in a different part of the world, felt like it was written for 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 Zimbabwe in 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 twenty seventeen and many other countries. So it 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 really owes it is that parallel, um, it is that connection with with Orwell that way. But it also owes a lot to 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 folklore, to Oricha. I was raised on my grandmother's stories before I even knew how to to read. So it has that connection as well. So in your novel, we see the old horse, um, the stand-in for Mugabe, ousted in a coup. His deputy, Tuvius Delight, Shasha, takes power. Um, we've talked about what this moment was like for the people of Zimbabwe when Emerson Manangagwa came into power. Uh, what does it mean for the animals of Jadada when this new young horse steps in? Is there that same hope and optimism? Uh, there is a hope um, and optimism, you know, but it's a it's a complicated hope. There are animals uh, who actually, there's a camp of animals who are actually warning the rest of Jadada to be careful because Again, it's somebody who's been part of the old horse's regime, is the deputy before the old horse kicks him out. But the hope and optimism are so strong that that camp is actually um, dismissed. But surely, sure enough, down the road, uh, the new fresh horse actually turns out to be, you know, the same as, as the horse that he has replaced or even worse. And into this story, you bring us a young goat. Her name is Destiny. And she returns from exile to Jadada. She's been away for 10 years. Uh, I was wondering, is, is she a stand-in for you? Quite, quite loosely, not in strong ways. I think our uh, me and Destiny's stories intersect in the sense that we both um, know something about being away from the homeland for Destiny's a decade. For me, it was slightly over a decade and for different reasons. I don't quite share her story on a personal level, though, of course, I share it as part of, as a Zimbabwean, as part of Zimbabwe. You, you were saying you were away from home for more than a decade. What made you return to Zimbabwe? Um, family. Most of my family is still there. And a big part of why I stayed away really was that I there were times when I just couldn't go home. I was an international student in the US. And for those who know about what it means to be an immigrant, um, especially a young immigrant without the resources to, to make those kinds of moves, it, it, it really can be difficult. Um, for many, staying away from home is, is not a matter of choice. You're actually forced to. You cannot go. Um, and I was fortunate that I was now I'm, I'm able to go as often as I, as I want to. But I am reminded of people who are stuck in their other countries, knowing that sometimes if they go, they will not be able to, to, to come back. And I'm sure being away for so long, whether by choice or not, when you do come home, you probably see things differently. Your eyes might be opened up 
in a different way. Were you surprised by what you saw in Zimbabwe when you did come home after all that time? Yeah, it was it was a long, long time. So much changes. The country moves on without you. You are a different person. You don't necessarily belong in the same ways that somebody who's never left um, feels that kind of belonging. So it was it was difficult, and it's still difficult today. But then one reminds themselves that this is this is home. It's a relationship you have to figure out and try to make it work. It's also a powerful position for a novelist, for someone who wants to analyse or critique their country. Absolutely, absolutely. And sometimes being away gives you that distance, that uh, different perspective to look at your country with with clear eyes. That is how I wrote my, my first novel. With Glory, I actually moved home so that I was close to the to the story. It was interesting actually to be there on the ground every day and experiencing life and what normal people experience on a day-to-day basis. It was it was jarring, but I, I it made me close a lot of gaps that I didn't quite appreciate from a distance. I remember speaking to Tsitsi Dungaremba, who was also shortlisted for the booker previously, and she told me about the challenges of being a writer uh, in Zimbabwe, you know, just on days when power and water can't be taken for granted. Uh, are you able to share a little bit about the realities of a, a writing day for you living there in Zimbabwe? Absolutely. And I mean, you know, the, 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 those challenges are challenges that everybody faces, whether they are a writer or not. Um, you know, water cuts and, and power cuts are so rampant. Those who are fortunate and can afford alternative sources are able to do so and continue with their lives. But the reality is that the bulk of the people um, are not able to, and it's a struggle. Now, when it, it comes to, to, to writers, um, it is quite difficult, and I'm grateful for people like Titi and many other writers who are based on home who are writing despite what is going on because I can't imagine the level of, 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 of stress. You really don't have the, 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 the freedom, the, the, the comfort. Um, and by comfort, I mean having a certain degree of normalcy that allows you the right headspace for actually being able to create without worrying about the dozens of things that you have to worry about that you shouldn't have to if it were a, a normal a normal country. And of course, there are no formal spaces that support the arts. So people really have to work extra hard for making sure that they, they do what they need to do to give us beautiful works. Uh, this book is uh, so critical in so many ways, so sad in many ways and challenging. Uh, but you're writing about your home, you're writing about your country. How important was it for you for there to be a, a level of hope or optimism in glory? It's important because I'm writing for a place and places because it's it's you know it's, it's crucial that we remember 
that there are so many jitatas out there. Tyranny is not just a Zimbabwean problem. But I really believe that it's, 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 it's hope that is going to carry us out of our current predicament. No, Violet Bulawayo, uh, it's been so wonderful to speak to you today. Good luck for the booker. Thank you so much and thank you for having me. And No Violet's Booker shortlisted novel is called Glory. It's published by Chateau and Windus. Let's take a walk in inner city Melbourne now. We're heading to Brunswick Street in Fitzroy. These days, it's pretty gentrified there. You can head to a cafe during the day. You can listen to live music at night. And it's a place that the author, Chris Womersley, knows well. He lives in Fitzroy and he was there in the 90s when his latest novel, The Diplomat, is set. The book's about the grief and regrets of a failed artist and addict whose wife has recently died from an overdose. Here's Chris with Sarah Lestrange. Hello, Chris. Hey, Sarah, how's it going? It's a bit noisy here, hey. Just passing the sex shop. How appropriate. (laughs) So I'm here with Chris Womersley, whose fifth novel, The Diplomat, is set in part along this street, Brunswick Street. As you mentioned, we just passed a sex shop, uh, now an op shop. And Chris, what's the book about? How would you describe it? Uh, The Diplomat's about a guy called Edward de Graves who returns to Melbourne in 1991 after being away for a couple of years. Um, He was involved in the fictional life of Cairo, which involved the theft of the Weeping Woman in 1986. So he returns to uh, Melbourne with a couple of sort of errands to run, basically, and he's beset by grief um, following the death of his beloved wife, Gertrude. And he ends up staying here at 419 Brunswick Street. So that's where we are right now. Yeah, which uh, in the novel is a um, sort of semi-legal youth hostel, which when I lived here in 1989 and 1990 was, I think, a semi-legal youth hostel, (laughs) basically. And then it became a sort of TV television repair shop, I think, for a long, long time. And now it seems to have reinvented itself just recently as a bathroom and kitchen renovation place. So a little bit different from your experience of it? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I I don't know. I'd be kind of intrigued to go around the back and peer through the fence, actually, to see how much... Can we do that? Yeah, let's do that. that. Because in the book, it's next to a brothel. Yeah. Is that in real life? Yeah, it was. There was a brothel next door. And my memory of the brothel was that it was called The Other Woman, uh, which I always thought was an incredibly witty name for a brothel. Um, (laughs) In my time there, people who worked there all seemed very kind of amenable and friendly. And uh, and, uh, yeah, it it was a fine place to live. Next door. (laughs) Next door. Um, Not admitting anything here. Uh, So we're coming around the back. Uh, We're in a laneway now, and there's lots of graffiti on the walls, the backs of these buildings, and um, do you know what you're looking for? I'm not really. I think the back of 419, oh, there's 417, would be this place here. Yeah, which in my day living here and the way I sort of describe it in The Diplomat, not that The Diplomat's a memoir really, but it was sort of completely overgrown and filled with like, you know, empty bathtubs and broken washing machines and that kind of stuff that you tend to find in 
um, dingy share houses in the 80s and 90s. Um, so why did you return to this, you know, this streetscape for this book? Well, I, in a way, I didn't want to. I sort of, I mean, when I was writing Cairo, I always anticipated it as being maybe the first part of a series of novels that would be sort of interrelated, although also standalone novels. And um, I envisaged it as being mostly set in London. Um, so, and, and I, you know, and the novels in my mind were all going to be named after places. So, I quite like the idea of having a novel called Cairo than a novel called Hackney, for example. Um, but I just sort of couldn't get it off the ground uh, or I couldn't sort of find a way in. And then it emerged in the, in the sense that I guess the diplomat is now, which is sort of the present, if you like, of the book is set in Fitzroy in 1991. And then there's various flashbacks to, his, to Edward's time in London in the late 80s. For Edward, he is in a place of deep regret and grief he is a drug addict he's whittled away his kind of um, promising years as an artist and he's sort of got nothing left what did you want to explore about um, those two dual forces grief and regret well in a way I think the series of novels you know the Cairo series of novels Cairo and then Diplomat you know Cairo is all about youthful optimism and being innocent and and sort of gullible to an extent and the next one, I guess, just following up is this idea of kind of being middle-aged and somewhat um, jaded about the choices that you've made or not made in your life. And a, a sort of, I mean, Edward's only 37, I think, in 91 when the novel is set, but he feels kind of older and he certainly feels that his, um, his art career hasn't really taken off in the way he would have liked or anticipated. Not that he's especially talented or has worked very hard as he himself will admit um so there's a sense of like all the things that he'd pinned his hopes on not only in terms of his career and so forth but in terms of his sort of entire rebellious if you like way of living has been hasn't borne much fruit in any way at all he, he thinks he thinks of himself as an outsider and he thinks he's pretty special because of that, but he sort of comes to realise that maybe he's not that special after all. Yeah, that's true. At one point, in fact, he sort of, you know, he comes across his dad, he goes and visits his father, he sort of says to him, you know, you think your suffering is special because it happens to you, but it, it's kind of not really in the scheme of things or not the sort of... I mean, not to say that he doesn't suffer or that people don't suffer and that he's incredibly grief-stricken over his wife's death and also the course that his life is taken but at the same time it's all pretty normal in a sense I suppose so he yeah you're right he thinks he's special and he's kind of kept himself apart from society I guess or sort of mainstream society or you know middle class bourgeois society but now he's coming to think that perhaps it hasn't really worked out he's not happy so it's sort of like well you know what's the point of kind of separating myself from the world because the end result of that is that I have, in fact, separated myself from the world and I have nowhere to go. I found the um, passages where he is reflecting on his addiction really mm. quite powerful, actually, because he's not, he's not an apologist for it, but he's trying to understand it. And um, I just wondered if you wanted, could read a bit from that. So this is a sequence where he sort of sees some people in, uh, in, a, in a bar who are obviously kind of organising a drug deal for themselves, and he's sort of looking on with a sense of kind of longing if you like and also exclusion from 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 this sort of group he sort of says there was nothing like it the drama was one of the things straight people would never understand how hard it was to abandon all of that 
part of the appeal of drugs, real drugs that is, not bullshit soft drugs like pot, is of marching to the beat of your own drum, of not doing what everyone else was doing. But your drummer boy is not your friend. Oh no, he's a right bastard. He starts to change the rhythm. He speeds up, slows down, loses the beat altogether. You become his drudge. You have to march day after day for miles and miles. And even the word addict, according to Gertrude, who knew a fair bit about such matters, came from the Latin addictus, which once upon a time referred to a debtor awarded to a creditor as a slave. Yeah, so that Gertrude is his wife who's just died from, you know, her addiction. So is this coming from a place of knowing, Chris? Um, yeah, basically. I mean, you know, I was a heroin addict for a long time, sort of most of my 20s, um, gave up when I was about 30 in the mid-90s. Uh, so, yeah, it's written from, it's taken me all that time to kind of distill it down to something that's hopefully interesting as art, as opposed to just memoir or something which doesn't really kind of interest me much as a genre in general and certainly is not something that I tend to do I mean I think um you know there's also an incident in the novel where Edward comes across a group of um a Dungeons and Dragons convention at the uh Diplomat Motel and so this is in St Kilda on the other side of the river in Melbourne the side we don't go to um never and um I went, to a, I went to a Dungeons & Dragons convention when I was about 15 in the early 80s at the Diplomat Motel and um, I've kept, and a few years later I started going to St Kilda to see bands and other nefarious things. And So you have been there occasionally? I have been there occasionally, but it, it always sort of struck me as a kind of a funny narrative device to have a clash of civilizations between the sort of the junkies of the Diplomat and the St Kilda and the sort of Dungeons & Dragons nerds. And it's taken me basically 40 years to find a place to insert this particular scene. So I guess it's just a way of saying that it takes me a long time to convert the base metal of experience into something that's hopefully narratively interesting. But, I, you know, I've never visited a brothel. I've never kind of transported anyone's ashes in an urn across, uh, you know, international lines or anything like that. So it's You didn't of, steal the weeping woman. I didn't steal the weeping woman. Though uh, not that you're telling us. <laughs> So, yeah, I guess it, for me it's all about sort of using so-called real experience in a way that's um, kind of is a garnish rather than the full meal of a, of a novel or a narrative experience. And I guess in coming back to that um, famous Picasso painting of The Weeping Woman that was stolen, that's a real thing that did happen from the NGV and you refer to it in both Cairo and The Diplomat. In The Diplomat you come up with a pretty cool uh, explanation for what actually happened. Could you just kind of remind people what actually happened with The Weeping Woman and the NGV? Yeah, so the theft of the Weeping Woman was in August 1986 and um, the National Gallery of Victoria had purchased one of Pablo Picasso's paintings for, I think, $1.5 million and there was a little bit of outrage not only in the sort of tabloid community about my three-year-old could do that, uh, but we also within the arts community about spending that amount of money on the work of a dead Spanish artist when that amount of money, particularly back then, could have funded, you know dozens of contemporary Australian artists. Uh, so a group calling themselves the Australian Cultural Terrorists stole the painting one weekend. No one knows really how except the people who did it. Um, and over the next two weeks they sent a series of letters to uh, the arts minister who also happened to be the police minister, a guy called Race Matthews. Um, 
It's a great combo. It was a particularly good combo for this crime and uh, threatening to burn the painting uh, unless the government established what was called, what they wanted to be called the Picasso Ransom, I think, which would be an art prize for funding Australian artists. And um, after about two weeks, it was returned to a locker at Spencer Street Station, which is now sort of Southern Cross Station, and apparently unharmed. And it's still hanging in the gallery today. Or is it? (laughs) You have to read the book to find out. (laughs) But um, part of that, I guess, discussion that you're exploring there is what it means to be an artist. Are you a fake? Are you just reproducing stuff that other people have done before? Yeah, that's true. And it's sort of, I guess some of those sort of questions are things that I butt up against as a novelist as well. This sort of sense of like, well... You know, why am I doing this? Have I, have I, do I have anything kind of extra to add to the literary kind of canon or pantheon? Or we've probably got enough novels, really, even though you should all go out and buy a copy of The Diplomat, obviously. But um, yeah, so those kind of questions around having something to say and, and, you know, there's a certain degree of ego attached to being an artist in the sense that you have to have some kind of belief that what you're doing is worth someone else's time. And yet you keep doing it. And yet I keep doing it because it's, I don't know why. I mean, I'm sort of a, a it sort of pays the rent. <laughs> and it's, you know, I've always understood the world through books, you know, for better or worse. So in, I think in writing as well and participating in it in a sort of a, a real way is also my way of digesting and comprehending uh, experience. Thanks for taking me around your Brunswick Street, Chris. Total pleasure, Sarah. Chris Wormersley and Sarah Lestrange speaking on Brunswick Street in Melbourne. The Diplomat is published by text and Sarah Lestrange is the wonderful producer of the book show. And that's it for today. Next time, Holly Ringland will be here. I know so many of you loved her first book, The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, and she's got lots to tell you about her new novel. It's a book she wrote in a caravan. The book show is made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Noongar people, and my name is Claire Nichols. Take care. Hi, Jonathan Green here. Uh, Hands up who's a regular Blueprint for Living listener. Oh, lovely. (laughs) Look, if you're not, every week we have a go at looking at the world through the the building blocks of a good life. We call it places, spaces, food, gardens and design. We talk buildings and cities, food and frocks. Fascinating conversations on the things that really matter. Never mind your politics and sport. Let's talk garden design, uh, which we do every month, by the way, with the king of Australian garden design, Paul Bangay. Uh, you'll meet Chef Annie Smithers too, as she tries to teach me the, the subtle ways of kitchen craft. In our next show, we take a spring garden walk with Melbourne Botanic Gardens director Tim Entwistle. We look at the sometimes idiosyncratic opinions of our new King Charles about modernism and architecture and a new cookbook written by two women desperate not to disappoint their Chinese mothers. Blueprint for Living with me, Jonathan Green. Catch it on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.